people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with A.J. Black. He is the author of, well, many things, and he's been on the show several times. But right now, he's going to be talking about Lost Federations, the unofficial, unmade history of Star Trek. Talked a little bit about that back when A.J. was on our Star Trek The Motion Picture episode, but he writes a whole lot more. I had a great time talking with A.J. as always. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. I'm taking it you're a pretty big fan of the show. What gave you that idea, Mike? <laughs> that is... Yeah, ever since I was a kid, ever since I was a kid, I remember watching The Search for Spock when I was around seven years old, and I had it on VHS. So that would be 89, something like that. So it was a few years old by then. That was the first one I remember watching. And then it, it, as I got into my teens, into the 90s, it was everywhere on television. You couldn't escape Star Trek, ultimately. And I didn't, and it got its claws into me. And so my starting point was very much the the 80s movies with the old crew, even though I hadn't seen the old series, and then the 90s TV shows. And I was just hooked from then on. Yeah, I guess the 90s were probably the best time to be around if you were a Star Trek fan, because you had TNG, you had Voyager, you had Deep Space Nine, plus you had the movies all coming out at the same time. Because that was, I want to say, early 90s. You, you still had Star Trek Six, and then eventually you had Generations. Yeah, that's a great time to be alive if you love Star Trek. It really was. That 90s period, I think they had, what was it, four movies during that time, most of which were the Next Generation movies by then. Apart from, obviously, the summer breaks that they used to have in network television, I don't think there was a period during that whole decade that Star Trek was not on air from 1993 to 2000 and then it changed after that but that is an astonishing amount of television because each of these shows had seven seasons certainly next generation deep space nine and voyager all of which at various points overlapped each other it was an absolute boon time and it's getting back to that a little bit now but because of the fact that they don't do as many episodes anymore they might do 10 13 if you're very lucky you're never ever going to have that period again where you're having 24 25 episodes of star trek a season sometimes twice over it was the golden age and i think i've said that in this book and before it was the golden age of star trek really so tell me about how this book came about because it is so exhaustive in its research and i can't believe just the amount of work that you must have put in to make this happen. But how did the idea for this even come about? It was a combination of, I think, two things specifically. The first being that I wrote a previous Star Trek book called Star Trek History and Us during the pandemic. That was my pandemic project when I wasn't working, <laughs> basically. Lots of people had pandemic project. And that was a, a cultural history of Star Trek going from the very beginning from the 1960s all the way through to the early 2020s essentially and while i was doing that book particularly when i was talking about the motion picture which was 1979 the first star trek movie i started to realize particularly with that film how much stuff about the production of it and all of the things that didn't happen that i was leaving out of that book because it would have been I'll get to that, but it would have been a whole other book. So I was a bit like, okay, this is all really interesting. And I think previously I'd had an interest in films that were never made. I'm sure you've read it, Mike, but David Hughes's The Greatest Movies Never Made, I think the book is called, is an example full of all those kind of projects, things like, I don't know, Paul Verhoeven's Crusade with Arnold Schwarzenegger or James Cameron's Spider-Man that were never made. A few years ago, I bought that gigantic Tashin book. Have you got that? Have you seen that, Mike? You probably, I bet you've got it, haven't you? Rob St. Yeah. Mary gifted it to me. So yeah, I do oh, have wow. a copy of that. Yeah. Okay. It's incredible, that book. <laughs> all the Tashin books are amazing, obviously. 
I'd always had an interest in the unmade movie thing. I, for years, I've wanted to do a podcast on it, and I think someone has. Someone's beat me to the punch on that. I combine those two things. I, I love those kind of projects that were always... The possibility was exciting of what could have been with all of these filmmakers, etc. And then, as I started to look into it with Star Trek, I realized there were so many of these examples throughout the whole history of it, both in, at, move, in the, at the movies and on television. That's when I went, okay, yeah, there is another book here. And I realized, I think the reason that I wanted to do what became Lost Federations is that there had been a huge amount of research done and a huge amount of relaying done from various different people over the years, creatives, filmmakers, etc., about a lot of these projects. But I'd never seen it all in one place, or the majority of it in one place. It was scattered over all kinds of different areas on the internet, in various different other books, some of which were really old now, some of which were out of print. And I thought, actually, I'd love to read a book where all of this is together, where you can create a narrative from the very beginning, from the 60s all the way through to the modern day, and tell the story of Star Trek that never was made. And that was it. And then I was like, okay. I'll try and do it. <laughs> and there we go. We did an episode on Star Trek, the motion picture. Just with that, there were so many different things. There was the, what was it called? The Planet of the Titans. There was the one about JFK. And I was so glad to read more of the JFK stuff because that was one where there was little rumors, little hints out there as to what that could have been. But you really gave me more information than I'd ever seen before about that. That was the intention because so many of these projects have been hinted at over the years or people might say, oh yeah, you might have heard in Star Trek fandom or elsewhere. Oh yeah, have you heard they, they were going to do a JFK Star Trek movie? It's like, what? And turns out there is more information out there. It's just not super aware. It's not super available or it, it's hidden under a lot of different places. Bringing that out was thrilling because... I think especially for a lot of those older movies, there are some real right turns or left turns or wherever you want to put it that would have created films that were so different and not necessarily better, but so different from those beloved 80s ones that we got, whether it's the motion picture or the Wrath of Khan or the Voyage Hope. These very deliberately 80s loved adventure science fiction movies. But imagine... If we lived in a world, Mike, where we'd got Planet of the Titans, I know we discussed this on the motion picture episode. So listeners who've listened, always listened to the projection booth will, will have heard some of this before. But that film would have been fascinating because it would have existed at a point where it's very much playing off the beats of things like 2001 A Space Odyssey. It would have existed at a point where science fiction wasn't happening really in American cinema. It was only until Star Wars where that really took off and then everyone wanted a slice of that pie. Before then, it was really low-key and it wasn't happening very much. But Planet of the Titans in the mid-70s would have been this gigantic, philosophical, strange example of where they go back to the <laughs> ancient start of humanity and they help them find fire and all this kind of thing. And directed by Philip Kaufman at the time as well. It would have been so interesting to see that. And... There was so much work done. Planet of the Titans particularly is one where there's a hell of a lot of research out there and a lot of testimony and, and drawings and, and all that kind of thing because there was a lot of work put into that before it ended up morphing into what became the motion picture. But I just find all of this stuff just eternally fascinating because I think with science fiction particularly, with these kind of films, there is so many possible, ju possible journeys that, that the Enterprise and this crew can take. Star Trek can go anywhere and do anything. And he proved that really throughout all of the TV shows and all of the movies, etc. I just loved learning about, like you say, about these things like the idea that maybe Spock was going to be the guy on the grassy knoll <laughs> with the JFK assassination and just things that sort of blow your mind a little bit that would they really have done that? And why didn't they do that? So often I was reading this thinking, researching this guy, they should have done that idea. It was so good. For all the different reasons, it never, a lot of these things never happened. The thing I like too that you were doing, so you've got 60 years plus worth of material or yeah, 60 years Pretty of much. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it 
you are able to tie those things together. Like you mentioned the, the podcast about movies never made that was Steven Scarlatta is doing that. And he also was the producer of Hodorowski's Dune. And one of the most fascinating parts about Hodorowski's Dune is where they trace, oh, this was an influence on that. You've got the desert planet in Star Wars. You've got the costume designs, which went into Alien. You've got this and that, and just all of these things. And you are able to do that with the Star Trek universe and able to say, the time travel idea eventually morphed into Star Trek Four, And this idea that was thrown out eventually morphed over here. I love that stuff. I love where you're able to trace those ideas how they morph and pass from one show to another and plus like i said we've got basically a dozen tv shows and a dozen movies it's crazy to think of just all of these different incarnations that you're able to trace these through one medium to another thank you for saying that. that's great that you got that from it because that was genuinely the idea but so many ideas that ended up carrying through into be it the TV shows, be it future movies, even if it was unconscious, even if there were certain characters or certain ideas that just kept on circling around or would be revisited, even unintentionally. And I think that's part of the fun of this kind of project because quite often it was different teams creating different ideas as well, but they would feel the same as what things were suggested before. I loved, I did love making those connections, to be fair. And I think you really start to see that as the movies and shows progress, and particularly on the TV shows, actually, because they do have a lot of overlap. And there's a lot of people working on these different shows that connect up. And that was funny. It was a bit, it was a bit of a jigsaw, I suppose, trying to put that together. Tell me about the research, because it must have taken you so much to uncover all of these things before you even started to make those connections. Cards on the table and say, a lot of this was pre-existing research. So I can't claim that I've dug out a million new things and I've spoken to a million different people. Because actually what I found in terms of actually trying to get people to talk about some of the older ideas is that there's still quite a bit of reticence, actually. Because I think a lot of them genuinely feel they're going to use this again. <laughs> you know, a lot of these ideas, sometimes they don't want to give it away because I think they think either in Star Trek or independently of Star Trek, they can actually create these ideas again. So I found that interesting. Like I managed to speak to one of my heroes, Nicholas Meyer, and he was lovely and he was very polite and very kind. He turned me down a little bit and he, and he did it in a, such a nice way by saying, yeah, he said, I'm still hoping to make my Khan spinoff <laughs> thing or whatever it is. So I can't really tell you anything. He wished me good luck with the book, which was really sweet of him. Because he's a good example of somebody who, if it wasn't for him, the Star Trek that we did get wouldn't exist. He absolutely laid down a visual and stylistic template for Star Trek that was unlike anyone before except Roddenberry. And, the, and arguably, Roddenberry himself was influenced by a lot of other very strong creative people in the 60s. People like... Herb Solo or Gene Kuhn at the time, who did as much to create the original Star Trek as he did. There was a lot of that there. But the re in, in terms of the research, it, like I said, it was a, a lot of it was scattered. A lot of it was digging into the amazing resource that is Memory Alpha, which is the Star Trek Wikipedia database, which is incredible. It's like the Borg. It's taken on a mind of its own. <laughs> and it's just spreading. But in that, there are tons of links to deeper research deeper interviews done in fanzines and magazines like Cine Fantastique that go back decades some of which are available online some of which aren't some of which you have to try and get them on eBay so there was a lot of that just digging down it was a bit of a rabbit hole for a lot of these to find the right quote or to find the right piece of information and then there were other books there were some fantastic testimonials like William Shatner's movie memories was a very good one because he talks a lot about things such as the deleted scene in Generations where you would have seen Captain Kirk skydive at the very beginning. So he talks about filming that sequence. And that was something I was keen to do as well, to try and find interesting little moments for films that did happen and for projects that did happen where there were things that were filmed or were planned that didn't end up working their way in there. A favourite of mine is that the Quark, the character from 
Deep Space Nine, the Ferengi bartender, he was supposed to be in Star Trek Insurrection, the movie in the 90s. Filmed a whole sequence where he's on a pleasure planet in a bathing costume or whatever, and there's a still out there of this. And I don't even think the scene was ever released itself, but he talks, the, the Army Shimmerman who plays Quark talks about this in an interview about shooting that scene, but it never made the movie, even though at the time they were really hot on trying to have little crossover things crop up in a lot of these films. You'd have a random, you'd have Whoopi Goldberg crop up at a wedding, <laughs> say, and she's got no other part of the plot. But so it's those, picking out those kind of things, th- those were the little gems. A lot of those came out of this kind of research and digging in. And a lot of them were, like I say, hidden in books that had long been, since been out of print. But there was there's some, there is some tremendous resources out there. I would encourage anyone who's interested in the Star Trek Phase Two project to go and read The Lost Years by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, who are both big cheeses in the Star Trek world in terms of writing novels and doing research and things. But they put together a tremendous history of Phase Two, which it's in itself is a huge what-if moment for Star Trek that would have been a sequel series to the original series back in the 1970s and heavily informs the motion picture and, and a lot of the next generation, actually, because there's various stories that, that took place eventually in TNG. And that's a great resource. So there, there are some very good independent resources out there that were really brilliant to, to utilise and draw all of this together and find all of those little connected. And that there were people who did give me their time ronald d moore who again is another hero of mine who and started on the next generation he then was a major part of deep space nine did a little bit for voyager although don't ask him about voyager <laughs> he doesn't have good things to say or actually do find his interview actually he did a, a probably oh, two, probably about 20 years ago now he did an amazing interview where he in detail he put he described all of the things with voyager that did his head in and they could have done differently. And it's brilliant. It's a kind of candid set of revelations about all the things that Voyager should have done <laughs> that you never get usually from anyone. And it was it's fantastic. He was great. He gave me bit, a few bits and bobs about some of the things they didn't do, some of the things they wanted to do on The Next Generation particularly. And the biggest one being they wanted to kill off Will Riker and replace him with a double <laughs> who had been created in a transporter accident which is a very good episode, Second Chances. It's a very good episode. And then he reappears in Deep Space Nine and he's a villain. And Jonathan Frakes has a lot of fun with that. But they wanted to completely get rid of Riker and bring him in, which would have been really bold. It would have been a hell of a bold move to do that in the sixth series of a long-running television show. But these shows didn't work like that then. (laughs) I'm not convinced they do now a lot of the time. There's still that cold feet about those kind of bold choices. He was great. And I had a lot of time with Andre Bormanis as well, who was a science advisor and a writer later on Enterprise. He was brilliant. He, would, he just talked to me for ages. And there was so much that I talked to him about that I couldn't put in the book because he starts talking about how he, he's worked for NASA and all these. And he was lovely and he was fantastic. I, I feel like there could be a whole other piece that I should do about Andre Bormanis based on what he talked to me about. He just loved talking about it. He just wanted to share and he wanted to go over it and he gave me more specifics about the season of Enterprise they wanted to do. Enterprise being the prequel series set something like 100 years before the original series, which was about the formation of Starfleet, essentially, and the first Enterprise that goes out there. He gave me more detail on how originally they wanted that to be Earth-based, and they wanted it to build up to the ship launching at the end of episode 20 or whatever. Again, which would have been a much bolder serialized television idea, and they didn't do it. And instead, they did a very formulaic, let's just do Star Trek. It just happens to be 100 years earlier. And it's not great, really, in the, mo- in the main. I think what came out of the research and speaking to these kind of people and finding these things is were so many bolder choices in many ways. The irony of Star Trek's logo being to boldly go. <laughs> Quite often, they didn't boldly go anywhere. They tentatively repeated themselves or they tentatively went there and with a lot of these lost stories there are a lot of bolder choices they could have made that they didn't and so the research was thrilling it was hard (laughs) it took a long time and then it took a long time trying to make it all connect and create a narrative but it was great fun it was great fun and it it was nice to go back and proof the book and read it and and see it all laid out Um, and obviously with any book Mike 
once you've written it and you have a little bit of distance, you, you go back to it and you go, who wrote this? Did I write this? <laughs> it's a, such a strange sensation. You just don't remember doing it half the time. Yeah, that's definitely helps out with proofing because then you can talk about the idiot that yeah. wrote the previous draft. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who wrote this garbage? The history of the show is so rich. Even when you just look back at the, the very first series and see all of the contemporary science fiction writers that were working on that at the time, it's what Rod Serling was doing with Twilight Zone, being able to take your Charles Beaumont's, your William Nolan's, all these guys and just throw them all together in a pot and see what you come up with. The seedbed of stories that were there in those first three seasons of the original series would then go on to influence all of these things. And then even those original seasons, they had different versions of those things too, which I was so glad to read in your book. Just that felt like, how did he get the keys to the kingdom for these things? Because it was amazing to read, oh, they would have gone here. They could have done this because they were under so many real world pressures at the same time. Yeah, the, the, the story of how Star Trek came to be and that first three seasons, it's a saga. It really is a saga. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> could have been me. a book just I on feel that. Like you could absolutely write a book just on the creation of that show, and I'm surprised nobody's done that, actually. Oh, maybe I've just thought of my third Star Trek book, Mike, live on this podcast. <laughs> maybe. Because it is, in some ways, the most interesting period. Obviously, the creation of a show is always interesting, but particularly in that period in the mid-1960s, with somebody like Roddenberry, who was such a character, he was such a gregarious character. He had such a life before he even wrote Star Trek. He was writing and developing TV series for years beforehand. He'd been a fighter pilot in the war and he'd had all these experiences. So he comes to Star Trek. He's already middle-aged and he's had a hell of a life. And he wants to create something that is, in part, I think it's that whole thing of middle-aged men trying to create a version of themselves, but in space. <laughs> And he definitely does that with elements of Kirk and particularly elements of the first character who would have been the captain, whose name was Robert April. And there is a whole, an amazing pitch document. And my first chapter is called Star Trek Is. And that's what this document was. It was this pitch doc document called Star Trek Is. And it listed all of the very original concepts for what would become Star Trek episodes. And it's an amazing thing to go through because there are so many threads that go into actual episodes that were made in star trek the original series but so many things that weren't ever done you know the one i love is the the one i think it was called a question of cannibalism on the document and this almost became the first movie because back in the 1960s at the end of the 1960s when there were the first conventions were going on uh, i think it was one called Worldcon, is where roddenberry's talking about how he wants to do a prequel series set at Starfleet Academy. And this is a prequel movie, I should say, set at Starfleet Academy with a young Kirk and a young Spark and a young McCoy. And that runs through the entire history of Star Trek to the point of they finally do it partly in the J.J. Abrams films and they're finally going to do it next year with a TV show. It's taken 60 years to get to the point they're actually going to do a Starfleet Academy thing. But right at the very beginning, he wants to do a film. And at that point, based on one of those original Robert April specs which is about going to a planet and they find a race of sentient cows or sentient versions of cows that are being harvested for meat essentially and it's one of those classics of star trek allegory stories it's about rampant capitalism and oppression and murder and all these things classically brewed up in a sci-fi concept but that that became the basis of the film treatment and then they took it to paramount and paramount basically went I'm not sure this is going to get him in on a Friday after a Friday evening. <laughs> I'm not sure it's kind of the romp we're looking for. A really sort of hard-headed sci-fi tale about murdering cows. So they did do that in the end, which I get. I understand that completely. Right from the very beginning, a lot of these original concepts were then bleeding into potential film ideas and then scripts for the original series and the animated series, which isn't something I talk a lot about in the book was quite important in the early 70s as that connective tissue between the original series and the next iteration, the movie, Phase 2, etc. But uh, like you said, along the way, there were some incredible writers linked to all this. 
Harlan Ellison was one in particular who did City on the Edge of Forever, which is recognized as one of the most iconic Star Trek episodes ever made in the 60s. And he, he was a really combative, difficult character quite often. And he, he had a lot of arguments about various things. But there were, there were so many. They wanted to go for the top caliber science fiction writers. They wanted to get people like Theodore Sturgeon. They wanted to get people like Philip Jose Farmer, who goes on to do Walt Newton. The Walt Newton universe, which is just the most insane, pulpy thing ever. He does that and they, get, they try and get, they get him. He's pitching ideas and things like this. I love that aspect of it because quite a lot of the stories these people pitched didn't make it, but they're fascinating. They really are fascinating because they, you can tell they come from these particular science fiction minds of the era and they would have made some incredible episodes had they been bolder, like I said earlier. Speaking of bold, you talked a little bit about some of the missteps along the way. I consider Enterprise and Voyager to be huge misses between the first season of Voyager where they're just, oh, this is going to get us home. And you're like, that kind of defeats the purpose of the show. Or they're fucking around on a holodeck all the time. Or you get <laughs> Enterprise with that horrific opening song, which I'm just like, oh, did God. you try to steal this from Firefly? What's going on with this? <laughs> but for me, there were so many missteps when it came to the movies. The post, post Star Trek six, some of those movies... The J.J. The Abrams ones are are fine. The second one really hurts my soul. But a lot of the Generations movies, with the exception of First Contact, they're hot garbage to me. And there must have been so many other ways that they could have gone with that. When they bridged the gap between The Next Generation and the movies, that with Generations, they were caught between a rock and a hard place in a way because they wanted, the Paramount still wanted to feature Shatner. Nimoy, etc., because they were well known. They were well known on screen. And I think they were jittery at the idea of grading people like Patrick Stewart, etc., to the movies. Because at that point, people now would think, oh, Patrick Stewart making a movie. Of course. But then it wasn't. This was before X Men. This was before the Star Trek films had been a success. And really, Star Trek has never been a massive box office winner, really. It's always done really well in America. But internationally, they don't do anything at all. They've never really made a lot of money. So really, the only ones really that book that trend are the, are the first two Abrams films. They did well because they were something slightly different. But the original ones, none of them were really gigantic successes. So they were always at that point much more small scale. And they felt much more, they were extensions of, of the TV series. And I think with Generations, you especially felt that, that it was an extension of the next generation. And it wasn't particularly a, a movie in its own right, nor was it the TV show either, because they had to wedge Kirk in there and they had to have a cameo from Scotty and Chekhov. And Nimoy just said, no, they wanted to get him back as Spock. And he went, no, you're giving me like five lines. Why would I do it? <laughs> no, why would they do it? They were caught between a rock and a hard place with that one. And then I think as it goes on, the problem I think they have really, and this maybe is connected to the fact that there is so much Star Trek out there. Back when the movies were happening, that was it. Until 1987, when The Next Generation airs, it was just the films. Wrath of Khan, Search for Spock, etc. Voyage Home. They were the only Star Trek things out there. So they had the space to really, and you had the nostalgia factor for a lot of the kids who'd grown up in the 60s. Now they're adults. They're introducing their own kids to these middle-aged crew who are really charismatic and funny and the movies are quite light and fluffy in the main or just completely off their trolley like The Final Frontier. She's <laughs> just nuts. But they're a good entertainment. But then when you get the Next Generation movies, it's hard, really, with the exception, like you said, of First Contact, which does have aspirations of being a bigger thing and it tries to be much more of a blockbuster kind of adventure. When you look at things like Generations or you look at Insurrection, very TV show, particularly Insurrection. And Insurrection for me is the one is the one that could have been genuinely brilliant because there was an amazing book that was written the time Insurrection was made called Fade In. And it was a making of that film by Michael Piller. Michael Piller was, again, probably outside of, of Roddenberry and the 60s, some of those 60s crew, and Nicholas Meyer. Michael Piller was the guy who set the standard for what Star Trek 1 television would be. He was the guy who came in the third season of Next Generation, and he completely revamped the whole thing. And he made that show into what it was. Without him, 
and what and the people he brought in, that show would might not have got as far as it did, really. So he deserves a massive amount of credit. He sadly died not long, only a few years after Insurrection came out, and, and Fade In was unpublished for years. He'd written this brilliant book in which he'd gone through all of the intentions for Insurrection, which he'd been asked to come in and write because Generations and First Contact were written by Brandon Braga and Ron Moore, both of whom knew their Star Trek inside out, but particularly both of them were still very busy with the TV show, TV series. Braga was doing Voyager in the main, and then he'd go on and do Enterprise, and Moore was doing Deep Space Nine. They, by the time they'd done those two movies, they well, we've done it all now, but we don't know where to go. So they got Pillar back in, even though he'd left the franchise by this point, to come in. And he's, he has these incredible ideas about wanting to explore the fountain of youth and wanting to go back to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which Insurrection in this, in, is essentially a version of that, really. They refer to it as Heart of Lightness because it was a lot lighter. But the original ideas were much darker, it was much stronger, it was much more powerful and gritty. And there's an incredible amount of information. I just scratched the surface. If you read that book and the documents around it, Insurrection could have been a fantastic exploration with an incredible villain who, a very Apocalypse Now story, who goes up the river, basically, and loses all perspective and just got milk watered down and watered down to the point where you end up with Data going a bit crazy and Picard and Worf singing HMS Pinafore to calm him down. There's nothing wrong with that, right? (laughs) It's fun hearing Patrick Stewart go, a British tart, all that kind of thing. But it's not really the height of powerful drama. These are all examples of where you could have had much stronger properties, but they end up becoming a victim of, I think, the lack of scale. The one as well was the fact when they hired John Logan in the wake of Gladiator to write Nemesis. I remember the excitement about that, genuinely, at that point, because he was an Oscar-winning writer and this was the, the next generation's big ending. It was, it was supposed to be the big finale. And it was a really bad movie in the end. And again, lots of interesting concepts and ideas that just didn't happen. And I, I see what you mean. While I enjoy genuinely actually all of those movies as a Star Trek fan on some levels, they do pale in terms of comparison, certainly to a lot of the original movies, but also some of those Abrams ones. Because even though it's not the same Star Trek, I think Abrams and those films deserve credit for actually revitalizing the whole thing. And I don't really think we'd be at a point now where it's much more in the public consciousness. And much as I don't love all of it, Mike, right now on television, it's never looked better. They've never thrown as much money at it. He deserves credit for that, really. Yeah, contemporary Star Trek is a, a little rough in spots. I feel like Discovery has found its footing. The first season was a little rough. Second season may be a little rough as well. At least Michael Burnham doesn't cry every single episode, which is good. <laughs> and then Strange New Worlds, I found the first season great. The second season just felt like they never hit the accelerator at all. It just felt like they were swimming around in the, some very familiar waters. But at least they're better than Picard. And hopefully one of these days we'll get more of these Kelvin universe films. Cause those, the first and third, the third, to your point about insurrection third felt like it was a TV episode for a TV series that never existed. I think with the, with beyond they, which is the third one, they wanted to, because it was the 50th, the 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary. Yeah. Because it was 50 years, they wanted to create something that was very much an homage to the original series. That, that you say that story could have been an original series plot, really, much more than the fir- the previous two Abrams films. And obviously, that one wasn't directed by Abrams; it was Justin Lin. It was a different kind of thing. The production of that was a bit of a mess because they had a change of scripts. And Simon Pegg ends up writing that with Doug Young. So a lot of that changes original plans for a very interesting ideas around time travel, which they were going to do in- involving the Vulcans and this kind of thing. They go by the wayside. And then Beyond doesn't really do very well, really. It underperforms, certainly compared to the previous two. And I think a combination of that and them thinking, what do we do now? What do we do next? Then a couple of years later, the pandemic comes along, throws everything out of whack. 
and subsequently, you 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 were approaching now ten years since there's been a Star Trek movie, which hasn't happened ever. <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened. I don't think there's ever been that level of a gap, even in the the point between Nemesis, which was two thousand two, and Star Trek oh nine, where Abrams reboots it. That was a dark period because Enterprise finished halfway through that and there were about two or three years where everyone thought Star Trek was dead forever. That was it. It was gone. At the end of the noughties. Even that was only a seven-year gap. And as of next year, we've hit that seven years and there is no chance of a Star Trek movie coming out next year because they haven't even filmed one. And they haven't even decided, I don't think, on what they're doing because there have been a litany of possibilities since. A lot of which I chronicle in the book and I try and go into... The one that I thought was going to take was where they get Chris Hemsworth back because Chris Hemsworth pops up in Star Trek 09 as Kirk's dad, dies early on, and they were going to get him back for a big time travel story. It was announced. Hemsworth saying, I'm looking forward to going back to do Star Trek 4. This was something like 2017, 18, I think. And then contract contracts break down. Chris Pine's contract breaks down. And then Paramount start to go, okay, why don't we do other things? Why don't we do... Oh, hang on. We've just had a call. We just had a call from Quentin Tarantino. He wants to make a Star Trek movie. Why don't we write a script? <laughs> Given how I know I know you're not the biggest fan of Tarantino, Mike. You must you must have groaned a little bit when you heard that that news. I did because Tarantino loves this whole historical revisionism lately. So I was just waiting for a parallel Earth story. And those sometimes can be pretty tiresome. Yeah. And that was his plan. That was what he apparently wanted to do. He wanted to remake a piece of the action, which is a gangster planet. And in the parallel worlds theory, which I, I mentioned in the book, which is a well-known Star Trek thing, and it got as far as a script. And uh, I think Marquis e. Smith, who worked on it with him, who wrote The Rever- Revenant, he's talked recently about how they, re- they wrote a script, it was there, and then Tarantino being Tarantino went, no, I'm not going to do a Star Trek movie as my last film. <laughs> and I... I don't think I, I didn't. I mean, I don't think anyone seriously thought he was going to make a Star Trek movie even before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came along. But the fact they were entertaining this is a test is a testament to how they had no idea what they wanted to do with this franchise. When the then you have there have been various people who've come on. S.J. Clarkson was supposed to direct a, a film that never, that never come to pass. Noah Hawley was working on a script for an entirely different new thing that it would have involved a deadly virus that spreads across the galaxy and then covid happens and they go no we're not doing that i'm if i be honest mike i'm the most sad that one didn't happen really because one thing that i'd love to see them do is something they'd never had the, had the bravery to do and make a star trek film with no previous actors or characters in it and they almost did it in the after enterprise they made they wrote a script for it was called the beginning and it was going to be about kirk's it was going to be before Enterprise. And it was going to be about Kirk's ancestor, and it was would have been a thrilling exploration of the mid or the early twenty second century or whatever, and it would have been a proper war movie essentially. Which you know, Star Trek has flirted with doing war movies for years. Walter Koenig wanted to do it in the early nineties. He wanted to do a version of Flanders Fields, which is a fascinating story, instead of what became the Undiscovered Country. Nicholas Meyer is massively inspired by World War Two submarine movies, which. In the Wrath of Khan, think movies with Kurt Jurgens as a captain and all this kind of thing. You, you go into the Wrath of Khan, and so the beginning would have been an amazing, and I chronicle a lot of that in the book. And that would have been an amazing film, I think, or amazing trilogy they wanted to do. But again, they got cold feet. They didn't do it. They did Abrams' film. So I would have loved to see Hawley get the chance to make something completely new for Star Trek, separate from the TV series. But I don't think it will happen. And to be honest, from a strategic point of view. I I understand the logic in making Star Trek 4 with Pine, Quinto, Saldana, all those guys. But they're not getting any younger. They're all going to be cruising towards middle age now. So you're actually going to hit the point where they're almost as old as Shatner Uh (laughs) and Nimoy and all these guys would have been when they did Star Trek The Motion Picture. It's weird. What do they do now? Do they reboot it again? Do they do... Because The Motion Picture essentially rebooted it in some ways and made them older and no, it's in a really weird place in terms of cinema right now, Star Trek. I understand where it's all going on the TV side, but they seem more keen to make things like TV movies, actually, TV movie events, than they are making actual big cinematic films. And listen, get it, I've always believed Star Trek is best on television, even though I think The Wrath of Khan is one of the greatest movies ever made. 
Star Trek is truly a television show and it works best on television. But equally, there have been some brilliant films and it would be great to see it properly there in a, in a cinema once again. But there's th right now, Mike, there are more unmade Star Trek films <laughs> in the modern day, which is good for me, than there are actual films. And I'd love to see that change. What would Brian Fuller have brought to the show? Because he famously got canned right before Discovery really started going. I think Fuller would have essentially done a, a version of American Horror Story, I think, in a way, in terms of the anthological, or Fargo, which is what Noah Hawley did, an anthological version of Star Trek. He wanted, he wanted to do Discovery, or certainly the first half of the first season of Discovery, which was about Klingon fundament fundamentalism and a war and that kind of thing. And he wanted to do that as a prequel to the original series. But then he wanted to go and do something in the Next Generation era. And he wanted to do what Picard ends up doing, not the same, but he wanted to take that era and follow up from things like Voyager Deep Space Nine, which for 20 years were a big unknown. And Picard has filled in a lot of those blanks, mostly in a way that I would never have done, <laughs> personally, if I'm honest. Quite disappointed with a lot of the choices that were made. Fuller would have done something much, much more in line with what Star Trek is, because he understands it. Whereas I'm not convinced a lot of the people writing Star Trek on television really do. Or actually, they're, they're too big a fan themselves. I think that's part of the problem. They're actually mega fans, and they don't quite have the perspective that people like Fuller or Ron Moore, who also would do it very well if he came back, they, they understood, they had the distance and the respect from it, I think, to properly do it in a really interesting way. And I think had Fuller done that, been able to do that anthological idea instead of Discovery, which he very quickly is booted out of and isn't really involved in, I think it would have been, we would have, it would be very different now. And again, I keep, this keeps being a recurring theme. It would have been a lot bolder because they would have been able to tell things in a very different way. It might have been in some ways a bit more like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that they're doing short series that various different places and points within this universe. And whether they would have weaved it into a whole, who knows? But I would have been quite happy to see 10 episodes set in 24th century, 23rd century, 22nd, 26th. So I think he'd have done that and I think it would have been fantastic. And I'm sad we never got that. I think that outsider's perspective is so important. I think that's yeah. why Nicholas Meyer really struck yeah. gold with Wrath of Khan because he wasn't slavish to the original and he was, let's change this up. New uniforms. We're going to make things more like the Navy. We're going to embrace the naval aspect of this. We're going to go for Horatio Hornblower meets Das yeah. Boot. And I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have said that better because that's exactly what it is. It's that respectful distance and not being slavish to the history of it. Roddenberry was massively inspired by Hornblower. He's on record as saying that, but he didn't equally didn't do the naval kind of thing that Maya really lent into visually in terms of the language that he used, that he brought in, that then filtered into Star Trek, that then the later shows, they retain elements of that you know that i think something that is, that that the franchise has got away from that formality which i think they run away from these days because i think they worry it will alienate audiences that was the point that was the language that was it's like shakespeare and i think that that was something that maya said it was like shakespeare and that's why you would put in lots of shakespeare illusions in the wrath of khan in the undiscovered country which itself is a line from hamlet he did all that because he understood the language of Star Trek had that. And interestingly, he was involved with Fuller on Discovery at the very beginning. He was a creative consultant. He was pitching ideas in. I think he was there when they were creating the idea of Michael Burnham and them being a mutineer, having a mutineer as your main character, all of which are really interesting, different ideas. And he very quickly also parts ways, I think because they rubbed up against the reality of Paramount saying, or CBS All Access at the time, saying... We need Star Trek to be modern. We need it to be thrilling. We need them to be saying, fuck. The moment that I realized that's what they were doing was the point that I was like, I don't think this is for me anymore. With the exception of Lower Decks, which is the spoof comedy, which is very good and very knowing and lampoons the thing with a lot of love. I honestly don't think it's for me anymore. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be made because there are a lot of people who love it, but 
I can't because it doesn't feel like it's the same thing anymore. And that makes me sound like such a old man shaking his fist at a cloud, Mike. <laughs> I really don't mean it that way. I mean it in the sense that I think the, the, the things that people like Maya did, things that, that Fuller would have done, they were artists who I think were able to have that, that awareness of the core ideas of Star Trek and what it was trying to say without necessarily needing it to be something that a corporation or want or something that fits into a, an existing language of television. And I think that's where Star Trek has ended up going, perhaps inevitably. And that's why these kind of people aren't involved anymore. And again, I hope that changes, but I don't think it will on the television side, which, which is why I'd love it to happen in a movie. And there's still a chance it might. There's still a chance someone like Noah Hawley might come along and make a film. And that would be brilliant. I think the Orville is probably the best Star Trek right, show yeah. on the air right now. Yeah. Yeah. Even though yeah. they're not on the air and I'm waiting yeah. desperately for them to come back. Yeah, I haven't seen all of the Orville, actually. I think I've only seen the first season, possibly. So I've got a bit of catching up to do with the Orville. But I, I know that it's... A lot of people have said to me that it is essentially like The Next Generation, <laughs> really, in terms of what it's doing. It is like a 90s Star Trek show. And I think... I, I've always been a proponent for them pushing the idea, the franchise forward. I'm not suggesting for a minute that they shouldn't make Star Trek in a modern context, I'm not saying it has to be just like the 90s, but equally, all that all it seems to do right now is try and pretend it's Star Wars quite often, for one thing, and also it just recycles the same characters, the same ideas, the same settings over and over again, instead of doing something genuinely innovative. I mean, look at look how the card ended. The card ended with, with it was basically the same plot as the search for Spock, where they, where they steal the Enterprise. <laughs> But they all get back onto the older. And once I saw that happening, a part of me was a little bit, the fan in me from the 90s was a little bit, oh, wow. But then the critic in me went, oh, my God. <laughs> like, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? And so I think that's the thing. It is in this push-pull, I think, right now, between what's best for it in the future and for it to survive for another half a century and what is going to get it commissioned by people who just want to make money they just want to keep selling the same characters it's the same story with all the franchises mike isn't it right now or cinematically or television star trek is no different unfortunately and the quality is suffering i think as a result you are never one to not be working on a ton of things what are you doing these days other than talking about your star trek book i am working, working on a ton of things i'm doing lots of podcasting on my we made this so i'm one of my Favorite things I'm doing right now is I'm doing a 90s movie podcast at the movies in the 90s, which I must invite you on, actually, because we'd have a great conversation. So I'm just doing particular 90s movies, picking them. Recently, we did The Age of Innocence by Martin Scorsese, which was brilliant. So I'm doing that, which is a lot of fun. And I'm writing various bits and bobs. And my next book is focused more on television. It is the story of the TV series Lost. So that's going to be chronicling the history of it digging into a lot of the mysteries and the characters. I've already spoken to a few of the people involved, hoping once the actors strike lifts, whenever that is, I can then start getting more people to come on and talk to me. But I've had some fun conversations with some cool people already. Yeah, that hopefully will be out next September because that's the 20th anniversary of Lost, which makes me feel extremely old. <laughs> that's when that started. But that's a lot of fun so far because it, it is a, an insane amount of my publisher has already told me, please don't make it as long as <laughs> the last book. Because, and I said, to be honest, I'm, that's going to be difficult because there is a lot. But oh, yeah. um, it's it's proving very enjoyable ah. so far. Uh, Tony, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work? Quickest, easiest place is via my link tree. So that's linktr.ee forward slash AJ Blackwriter. You'll get links to the books, work I'm doing, podcasts, etc. So it's all there. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time we record. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you indulging me to talk about my book. And so, yeah, really appreciate it. And thank you, anyone who listens to this who goes and buys a copy. It's hugely appreciated. And it's a great book. So definitely pick up a copy. Perfect for the holidays. Thank you. Across the universe On the Starship Enterprise I'm the Captain Kirk 
life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it. Not as we know it. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it. Captain. Engine room, work factor nine. 